Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Been working hard this past week. We did close to another 7,500 injections. Probably two-thirds of them were second doses, so that's looking good. Hopefully we'll keep those numbers up. My team is going to be moving back into a mobile unit capacity in the next two weeks, so we'll be floating around Georgia in the Atlanta metro area. So if you want a free COVID vaccine, make an appointment and come on by. I might be the guy taking care of you. Except I don't do the actual injections. There's a medical professional that does that. Tangential story. I was telling my wife that there was a paramedic training another paramedic how to give injections, and I got to watch because he was being taught on the guy that I had wheelchaired over there. And it's not that hard, honestly. I could probably do it. I told my wife everything it involved. I saw it like three times and told her I think I could be certifiable in giving COVID vaccines. She agreed that I am indeed certifiable. My wife is amazing, everyone, and I'm sorry you all miss out on the best times with her. I've tried talking her into doing a show with me, but she doesn't want to, so sorry. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying National Poetry Month. Still got some really great poems coming up in the next few days. As will be the case from now on, if you are deaf or hard of hearing or just want to be able to follow along, there is a transcript for this episode. You can find the link for it in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and let's continue on with The Horror from the Hills by Frank Belknap Long. Chapter 6. The Time-Space Machine Roger Little's laboratory was illumined by a single bluish lamp embedded in the concrete of its sunken floor. An infinite diversity of mechanisms lined the wall and sprawled their precise length on long tables and dangled eerily from hooks set in the high, domed ceiling. Mechanisms aglitter in blue-lit seclusion, a strange, bizarre foreglimpse into the alchemy and magic of a far-distant future, with spheres and condensers and gleaming metal rods in lieu of stuffed crocodiles and steaming elixirs. All of the contrivances were arresting, but one was so extraordinary in size and complexity that it dominated the others and riveted Algernon's attention. He seemed unable to drag his gaze from the thing. It was a strange agglomeration of metallic spheres and portions of spheres, of great bluish globes surrounded by tiny clusters of half-globes and quarter-globes whose surfaces converged in a most fantastic way. And from the globes there sprouted at grotesque angles metallic crescents with converging tips. To Algernon's excited imagination, the thing wore a quasi-reptilian aspect. It's like a toad's face, he muttered, bulbous and bestial. Little nodded. It's a triumph of mechanical ugliness, isn't it? Yet it would have been deified in ancient Greece, by Archimedes especially. He would have exalted it above all his conoids and parabolas. What function does it perform? asked Algernon. A sublime one. It's a time-space machine. But I'd rather not discuss its precise function until I've shown you how it works. I want you to study its face as it waxes non-Euclidean. When you've glimpsed a fourth-dimensional figure, you'll be prepared to concede, I think, that the claims I make for it are not extravagant. I know of no more certain corrective for an excess of skepticism. I was the critique of pure reason personified until I looked upon a skinned sphere. Then I grew very humble, reverent toward the great suspected. Watch now. He reached forward, grasped a switch, and with a swift downward movement of his right arm, set the machine in motion. At first, the small spheres and crescents revolved quickly, and the large spheres slowly. 
then the large spheres literally spun while the small spheres lazed, and then both small spheres and large spheres moved in unison. Then the spheres stopped altogether, but only for an instant, while something of movement seemed to flow into them from the revolving crescents. Then the crescents stopped, and the spheres moved in varying tempo, faster and faster, and their movement seemed to flow back into crescents. Then both crescents and spheres began to move in unison faster and faster and faster, until the entire mass seemed to merge into a shape paradoxical, outrageous, unthinkable. A spheroid with a non-Euclidean face, a geometric blasphemy that was at once isosceles and equilateral, convex and concave. Algernon stared in horror. "'What in God's name is that?' he cried. "'You're looking on a fourth-dimensional figure,' said Little soothingly. "'Steady now.' For an instant, nothing happened. Then a light, greenish, blinding, shot from the center of the crazily distorted figure and streamed across the opposite wall, limning on the smooth cement a perfect circle. But only for a second was the wall illumined, with an abrupt movement, Little shot the lever upward, and its radiance dimmed and vanished. "'Another moment and that wall would have crumbled away,' he said. With fascination, Algernon watched the outrageous spheroid grow indistinct, watched it blur and disappear amidst a resurgence of spheres. "'That light,' cried Little exultantly, "'will send Shanyar Fawn back through time. It will reverse its decadent randomness, disincarnate and disembody it, and send it back forever. But I don't understand, murmured Algernon. What do you mean by randomness? I mean that this machine can work havoc with entropy. There was a ring of exaltation in Little's voice. Entropy? Algernon scowled. I'm not sure that I understand. I know what entropy is in thermodynamics, of course, but I'm not sure. I'll explain, said Little. You are, of course, familiar with the ABCs of Einsteinian physics and are aware that time is relatively errorless, that the sequence in which we view events in nature is not a cosmic actuality, and that our conviction that we are going somewhere in time is a purely human illusion conditioned by our existence on this particular planet and the limitations which our five senses impose upon us. We divide time into past, present, and future— but in reality, an event sequence in time depends wholly on the position in space from which it is viewed. Events which occurred thousands of years ago on this planet haven't as yet taken place to a hypothetical observer situated billions and billions of light years remote from us. Thus, cosmically speaking, we cannot say of an event that it has happened and will never happen again, or that it is about to happen and has never happened before, because before to us is after two intelligences situated elsewhere in space and time. But though our familiar time divisions are purely arbitrary, there is omnipresent in nature a principle called entropy, which, as Eddington has pointed out, equips time with a kind of empirical arrow. The entire universe appears to be running down. It is the consensus of astronomical opinion that suns and planets and electrons are constantly breaking up, becoming more and more disorganized. Billions of years ago, some mysterious dynamic, which Sir James Jean has likened to the finger of God, streamed across primeval space and created the universe of stars in a state of almost perfect integration, welded them into a system so highly organized that there was only the tiniest manifestation of the random element anywhere in it. The random element in nature is the uncertain element. 
the principle which brings about disorganizations, disintegrations, decay. Let us suppose that two mechanical men, robots, are tossing a small ball to and fro, to and fro. The process may go on indefinitely, for the mechanical creatures do not tire, and there is nothing to make the ball swerve from its course. But now, let us suppose that a bird in flight collides with the ball, sends it spinning so that it misses the hand of the receiving robot. What happens? Both robots begin to behave grotesquely. Missing the ball, their arms sweep through the empty air, making wider and wider curves, and they stagger forward, perhaps, and collapse in each other's arms. The random, the uncertain element, has entered their organized cosmos, and they have ceased to function. This tendency of the complex to disintegrate, of the perfectly balanced to run amok, is called entropy. It is entropy that provides time with an arrow, and disrupting nebula plays midwife to the birth of planets from star wombs incalculable. It is entropy that cools great orbs hotter than Betelgeuse, more fiery than Arcturus through all the outer vastnesses, reducing them to sterility, to whirling motes of chaos. It is the random element that is slowly breaking up, destroying the universe of stars. In an ever-widening circle with an ever-increasing malignancy, if one may ascribe malignancy to a force, a tendency, it works its awful havoc. It is analogous to a grain of sand dropped into one of the interstices of a vast and intricate machine. The grain creates a small disturbance, which in turn creates a larger one, and so on, ad infinitum. And with every event that has occurred on this earth since its departure from the sun, there has been an increase of the random element. Thus, we can legitimately place events in time. Events which occurred tens of thousands of years ago may be happening now to intelligences situated elsewhere, and events still in the offing, so to speak, may exist already in another dimension of space-time. But if an Earth event is very disorganized and very decadent in its contours, even our hypothetical distant observer would know that it has occurred very late in the course of cosmic evolution and that a series of happier events, with less of the random element in them, must have preceded it in time. In brief, that sense of time's passing which we experience in our daily lives is due to our intuitive perception that the structure of the universe is continuously breaking down. Everything that happens, every event, is an objective manifestation of matter's continuous and all-persuasive decay and disintegration. Algernon nodded. I think I understand, but doesn't that negate all that we've been taught to associate with the word evolution? It means that not advancement, but an inherent denigration has characterized all the processes of nature from the beginning of time. Can we apply it to man? Do you mean to suggest that? Little shrugged. One can only speculate. It may be that medieval theology wasn't so very wrong after all. That old Augustine and the angelic doctor and Abelard and the others surmised correctly. That man was once akin to the angels and that he joined himself to nature's decay through a deliberate rejection of heaven's grace. It may be that by some mysterious and incomprehensible perverse act of will, he turned his face from his maker and let evil pour in upon him, made of himself a magnet for all the malevolence that the cosmos holds. There may have been more than a little truth in Ullman's identification of Shawnier with the Lucifer of medieval myth. "'Is this,' exclaimed Imbert reproachfully, "'a proper occasion for a discussion of theology?' "'It isn't,' Little acknowledged. 
but I thought it desirable to outline certain possibilities. I don't want you to imagine that I regard the intrusion of Shanyar Fawn into our world as a scientifically explicable occurrence in a facilely dogmatic sense. I don't care how you regard it, affirmed Algernon, so long as you succeed in destroying it utterly. I'm a profound agnostic as far as religious concepts are concerned, but the universe is mysterious enough to justify divergent speculations on the part of intelligent men as to the ultimate nature of reality. I quite agree, Little said. I was merely pointing out that modern science alone has very definite limitations. And yet you propose to combat this, this horror with science, exclaimed Imbert. With a concrete embodiment of the concepts of transcendental mathematics corrected Little, and such concepts are merely empirically scientific. I am aware that science may be loosely defined as a systematized accumulation of tendencies and principles, but classically speaking, its prime function is to convey some idea of the nature of reality by means of an inductive logic. Yet our mathematical physicist has turned his face from induction as resolutely as did the medieval scholastic in the days of the troubadours. He insists that we must start from the universal assumption that we can never know positively the real nature of anything, and that whatever truth we may deduce from empirical generalities will be chiefly valuable as a kind of mystical guidepost, at best merely roughly indicative of the direction in which we are traveling, but withal something of a sacrament and therefore superior to the dogmatic knowledge of 19th century science. The speculations of mathematical physicists today are more like poems and psalms than anything else. They embody concepts wilder and more fantastic than anything in Poe or Hawthorne or Blake. He stepped forward and seized the entropy-reversing machine by its globular neck. Two men can carry it very easily, he said as he lifted it a foot from the floor by way of experiment. We can train it on Shanyar Fawn from a car— if it keeps to the open streets, interjected Algernon, we can't follow it up a fire escape or into the woods in a car. I'd thought of that. It can hide itself for days in Central Park or Inwood or Van Cortland Park or the wider stretches of woodland a little farther to the north, but still close to the city. But we won't cross that bridge until we come to it. His expression was tense, but he spoke with quiet deliberation. We could dispense with the car in an emergency, he said. Two men could advance fairly rapidly with the machine on a smooth expanse. "'We must make haste,' he continued after a moment. "'It's my chauffeur's day off, but I'll take a taxi down to the garage and get the car myself.' He turned to Algernon. "'If you want to help, locate Shanyar Fawn.' Algernon stared. "'But how?' he gasped. "'It shouldn't be difficult. Get in touch with the police. Assistance and ambulance division.' Ask if they've received any unusually urgent calls, anything of a sensational nature. If Shanyar is slain again, they'll know about it. He pointed urgently toward a phone in the corner and strode from the laboratory. And that is chapter six. We are officially in the back half of the story, and I certainly hope you're enjoying it. Transcripts of my remarks in the story can be found in my Google Drive. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoy what I do here at Weird Tales Podcast, Inc., LLC, Incorporated, please feel free to support me on Patreon. You can subscribe at any amount, and you'll get access to the show a few days early. There's also a $10 tier that gets you access to a bonus feed, wherein I'm reading one of my favorite books. You can find that at patreon.com slash Podcast. Thank you, Hermagoras, for your support. Pontus Fredrickson, thank you. 
Andrew Buchanan, thank you. Damon Bowles, thank you so much. Marco Van Putin, thank you. Everyone who supports the show on Patreon helps to keep the lights on, the hosting fees covered, pay any licensing fees I occasionally have to pay, and compensates the guest readers I have come onto the show. There are five of them coming up in June for Pride Month, and it's because of your generous support I'm able to compensate them for the time and energy. Thank you so much. I hope you all are having a good week. Please get vaccinated if and when you get the chance, and even afterwards, please continue to wear a mask when you go outdoors. I know it sucks. I hate doing it, but it's not for your comfort. It's to protect those around you. You can still spread COVID even if it won't affect you terribly because of the vaccination, so do your part to protect the population around you. Thank you so much for listening, and have a good week. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the bloops. So we'll be floating around Georgia in the Atlanta... So we'll be floating around Georgia in the Atlanta metro Atlanta metro area. Get it right. Which we experience in our daily lives is due to our intuitive perception that the structures of the universe is. Ah, screwed it up there. I was doing so well, too.